Hey, it's Jonathan from Object Sharp, and on this episode of the podcast, I chat with Dave Judd and Rob Berger about data in the cloud. Plus, Dave and Rob share their go-to approaches for sending data to and storing data in the cloud. Welcome to the Object Sharp podcast. Today in the studio with me, we have Dave. Welcome back, Dave. Hi, how's it going? Very good. Thanks. Thanks for coming back. And we have Rob, who is actually here for the first time. So welcome. Welcome, Rob. Um, and you know what? Just because you are the newbie, so we're going to start with you. Why don't you just let everybody know um, who you are, what you do, and um, you know anything else that you'd want us to know about you? Sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Rob Berger. I'm a principal consultant at Object Sharp, working in the, the data practice. I've been working in IT and uh, industry for the last 17 plus years. Uh, any, anything from um, BA to design to architecture to down to the implementation and doing the coding. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to have this, this chat on data and where we're at uh, in 2021. Nice. Well, before we get in there, Dave, just for just in case anyone has missed any of your prior episodes, which, by the way, there are plenty now with Dave, um, why don't we do a little bit of intro for you as well? Sure. Yeah. My name's uh, Dave Judd. Been with Object Sharp almost 10 years now, uh, principal consultant and run the application development and now data practice. So um, six months ago, uh, we met Rob. Uh, actually March of this year and uh, ever since then Rob's been helping me get object sharp into the data space kind of um, focused on that nice okay well then I mean that that's that right away gets me thinking it's like okay so we're building a practice around this but why like what what about data has all of a sudden made it such a big deal that it's like it deserves its own focus so I'll take a quick stab and then pass it over to Rob for his, his two cents on it. But I think the, the real change happened, you know, probably two years ago. Um, we started noticing our client base. We've been helping them build, you know, cloud native applications for the last five years. And there was less a demand of that. Um, it was more, okay, how can we help you this year? What, what can you do for you? What's your big pain point? And what, what we're finding is that, you know, they've been using apps, they've been writing apps, they've been using them for several years now, and they've started amassing all of this data. It's all sitting in different databases, different files. Um, it might be third-party software, it might be stuff that they wrote themselves. And really, business kept coming to them saying, you know, it'd be great if we could compare this to this, or we could build a dashboard with this and this, right? And it was an ongoing theme that we started hearing. And we really weren't kind of tooled up to handle that situation. And that's when, you know, again, about 18 months ago, we said, well, you know, there's got to be tools for doing all of this. Big data is a thing. It's kind of come and gone. Like what, what tooling do we need to start um, looking at? And, and that's kind of what led us to start the, the data practice. But I'm sure there's reasons why it's very prevalent now. Um, you know, maybe Rob, you want to uh, talk to that as well. Yeah. Maybe to add to that, I think it, in many ways, it could be a function of where we are in the cloud maturity cycle. Uh, many companies now, especially at the enterprise level, are either on the cloud, they're in their kind of second or third iteration of being on the cloud. Uh, some are even multi-cloud. 
And so when you're on the cloud, the kind of the first thing is like, okay, I'm going to build some apps, but I need some data. I, I need my data. I've got all these on-prem systems in various forms and shapes and sizes. How do I get my data to the cloud? So I think now you've got a bit of a wave of that. And, and maybe second, I think you could think of it as a, as a function of we've had the traditional data warehouses for a long time on-prem and they have now you know, manifested themselves even as cloud services as these traditional companies put, put their stack in the cloud. But you also have, as Dave mentioned, that big data um, practice that, that, that has come from like 2010. It's matured. It's in a sense gone, but I think maybe a nicer way of looking at it is it's, 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 it's gotten a little older and uh, it's now moving onto the cloud and in a cloud native uh, first approach. So I think when you think about those things, that's why data is important and relevant right now. So it sounds like it's more, I mean, all of those things are from a technical perspective. What about if we look at it from, from a business perspective? Like there's so much data right now, like every system is producing data, right? So to me, I think about it as like, okay, so it's great, you know, you have the tools to store it and stuff like that, but I'm assuming, I'm assuming all of this data is generated and you want to, you know, plow through the data and something for, to help businesses run. Right. But like, what about, yeah. why? Yeah. So I think my, my journey kind of started from the, the business side. It was talking to the business. They, they weren't, like I said, asking for an app to do some processing. They were, they were asking for, we have this data. We know there's value in there. We know there's insight we can gain from it, but we're not looking at it the right way. Then I think the other thing driving it, JR, is the, this buzzword of ML. Everyone wants to be doing AI and machine learning, but the truth is, is that not many people are ready for it. They want to be there. They want to start doing prediction. They want to start you know, being able to use machine learning to figure out what the right patterns are and to make themselves more efficient. But the first step is the data, and it's discovering what data you have and then processing it and putting in a format that you can start then using for, let's say, first historical reporting, but then predictive analysis. And that, that's kind of the, that's the drive behind the business side is they think there's something in their data that they're missing and it's, it's scaring them. There's something there that, you know, the secret sauce is there, right? Um, and maybe it's to make them more efficient, but then more importantly, can they productize it? Is this data, is this information something that can make our customers better, right? And not... You know, that's really the holy grail there is being able to use your data to make a product to make other clients smarter. So, yeah, yeah, so when, you, yeah. when you think about it, it, as Dave says, you, you start to see two, two lines, two areas. What, one where it's been a little bit more traditional with business intelligence and uh, I'm looking historically at my data and I'm then as a business leader, I'm making some sort of decision based on what I've learned. Hopefully it's a good one. And that's how I operate. Um, but then you see um, there you have a lot of companies that started to adopt these machine learning practices and AI algorithms to not only have their systems generate the decisions for them in more of a predictive manner, but then they're taking that. And there's lots of examples of companies that then embed that into their actual product. Just think about the products that you use on a daily basis. In most of them, there are machine learning models running and providing you with the part of that service. Uh, and maybe another like dimension of looking at it of, you know, how does data help businesses? Well, you need to organize your data. And, and I think that's something that's, that's 
there's plumbing. So when we say how does data help, it's really a, it's how do you organize your data so that you can operate efficiently? And I think that's something that's very important. I'm assuming when you say organized data, you're, you don't mean like where, where do I put, which data do I put in which database? No, it, it's more of, as you on the onset you know, mentioned that it's, there's lots of data. These, these systems, these uh, companies are generating more data than they traditionally may have. Uh, as their businesses grow, as their products develop, as they move into more of uh, a, a, an IT side of maybe what was maybe paper-based or traditional, think of an insurance company, for example. So there is an element of making sure that they know where their data is, uh, what system it is, so some cataloging in a sense, if you will. And I, I think that's important uh, aspect. It's not just about the insights. It's also about understanding your your data. And we're going to get into that, I think, uh, as we progress with our discussion. Well, I mean, that that's the question that comes right up front. Like, as soon as you said that, I'm thinking, okay, so sure, I'm, you know, me being the more traditional developer, at least coming back from that background, I'm thinking, when we say organize, it means this data goes here, this data goes here, and then somehow we got to go figure out um, how we connect all that together. But that's all fine and dandy. When you take it to this next level, it's like, how do you even begin to understand what data you even have, right? Yeah, like I, I know it from an application data, but to Dave's point, it's like nowadays it's more than just application data. So like, what are some of the things that people are starting to think about or that you guys advise clients to think about just to start understanding the data? Sure. So quick one, again, it's back to tooling. Tooling is getting much smarter and, um, you know, Plugging Purview, that's Microsoft's new way of doing this. It's basically a cloud-based tool, uh, has a whole bunch of plugins. You can point it at all your different data sources, whether they be files, databases, open source databases, and it starts running scans and it starts analyzing all of the data inside and presenting it back to you in kind of a cohesive way where you understand, okay, these are the schemas in there. Here's where my classified data is. Here's where some private data might be. Right. And then it starts, that's kind of step one. It's building out that catalog for you. And it's smart. It matures over time as you let these things run. Then it starts doing things like lineage. How is this data connected to that data? How did this data transform from here over into there? What's that process that did the transformation? It can start figuring that out as well. Right. So there is tooling, but there is a little bit of rolling up your sleeve and saying, okay, we know we got these 15 application databases. Why don't we start capturing some of that data and organizing it this way up in our data lake? And we're going to talk about data lakes, but data lakes are cheap storage, right? They're fully redundant. They're highly available. We can start organizing our data in a, in a ready to read format up in our data lake and really just start looking at it. Right. And, and that's part of the process too, because there's no kind of magic wand that you can wave as good as the tool is to say, hey, we know what all our data is now and we know what we're going to do next. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, um, traditionally, you would have been putting your data in these these relational database management systems that were mostly on-prem. There yeah. are versions of it now in the cloud. But when you think about the, the cheap cloud blob storage, that's really where you want to put it. So you want it in one place. But... What we've learned from the whole Hadoop cycle, uh, where you just dump your data, is that it does become a little bit more difficult 
once you've got all your data in one spot to then start making sense of it, start understanding just where it all is in your massive data lake. And hence you get all these terms such as data swamp, et cetera. So recently you, you get technologies that have come out through mostly through the open source community and then have been productized uh, from through different companies of where you, you need to add a, another layer and really it's a transactional layer. So then once you have that, you can start adding schemas. And once you have schemas, you can start doing schema enforcement and quality checks. And, and your data starts to take more of a structural shape uh, like you maybe traditionally have in a, in a SQL, SQL data warehouse, for example. Um, but then on top of that, you, you need to process your data. So there's two APIs that uh, many people use in the data area. It's one's called a data frame. And then once you have data frames, you, you can start running SQL. You can build SQL on top of it, which is generally the lingua franca for, for selecting and analyzing your data uh, in a business intelligent mindset. And it's not the same when you get into machine learning, but we'll talk about that maybe in a, in a bit. So I think those are things that you, you need to do in order to start to understand your data uh, that you have and, and how you really should be thinking about it. Well, so now, so now you got me even more intrigued because on the one hand, you're throwing at me all, all, like all of these new terms, or at least new terms to me. And then, you, you know, Dave, you were saying, it's like, okay, well, at some point you have to roll up your sleeves and, and do some stuff. So, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is like, uh, who rolls up their sleeves and, and does that? Because... I don't know, like, is this is this a, a, a developer thing to do? Is this a data thing to do? Is this a data engineer? Like, who does yeah, this? That's stuff? a good, real good question. Um, you know, so it doesn't need to be a developer. That That's first off. I mean, they need to have a developer mindset, but there's this concept of a notebook. It's not new. It's, you know, part of the Hadoop, uh, Hadoop ecosystem. It's been around for a while. But notebooks are a pretty powerful tool that lets you quickly look at your data and analyze it using different languages, right? So one of the tools that you have in these, you know, new architectures up in the cloud is this notebook. And I'm even finding business analysts and data analysts can write simple queries. They can start visualizing the data. They can understand the schema. They can start seeing relationships between data, right? Quickly using kind of a common API and, and the API we kind of, lean towards is Spark. Spark is a general purpose, I guess, data processing language, if you will. Um, language independent. If you're a .NET guy like me, there's a Spark.NET. If you're a Java guy, there's there's Scala, there's Python. Python's pretty uh, popular in the, the data science um, realm, but it's all using this similar API and similar constructs to start looking and then processing and maybe transforming your data, right? So does it have to be a developer? No. Um, many business analysts and data analysts are the first ones to take a stab at these notebooks. And then they present back their findings to people to say, Hey, this is pretty interesting. Take a look at this query. Or when we join this and this with this, we can run this output. So a notebook lets you write little cells. Um, you can see code, uh, you know, a few lines of code. You can see some data come back. You can even plot that data onto graphs and do visualizations all in one nice little workspace, right? So um, think of it as a simple development environment for data analysts. So kind of like, kind of like how Mike Walker was talking in a previous episode about, you know, the, the whole power platform and how that has sort of transformed app development to a, the, a new term that I learned at the time, which I didn't know, which was, um, what did you call it? Civilian developer. 
Yes. And I, or yeah, citizen, citizen developer. Citizen developer, yeah. Citizen developer. Taking someone that doesn't know a lot of code and making them useful within an environment to do something. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like it's the same thing here as it relates to data. It yeah. is, but I would caution that you can start doing very complex things with Spark before you know it. Like, you know, complex joins and just how you process the data. Um, I would say the difference between what Power Platform was trying to do is that's a very low code, no code approach, whereas Spark is more a code first approach. I'm writing small bits of code, but I'm not using a visual tool to look at my data. I'm actually writing some code to analyze the data. And Rob, maybe you want to jump in. Yeah. And again, so when we think about that data, data frame API, that abstraction that is well known within mostly in the data science community, as Spark brings that to the fore and makes it as its foundational building block, not only can you then start building SQL on top of it, which is what they've done in Spark, which um, provides a, an approachable way to analyze the data for business analysts and data analysts. But that same data frame API then provides data scientists and people who are writing uh, types of algorithms that are very recursive. And as they, they basically are trying to uh, approach that statistical um, error and, and get more efficient about it, uh, you can't really do that stuff with SQL. So with Spark, you're getting a general programming language that provides both groups, the traditional business intelligence and the data scientists and machine learning and AI folks with a platform. And then this platform can come in a couple flavors. Uh, we see that there's Microsoft Synapse, for example. You have Databricks, which is uh, setting, really setting the forefront of what this notebook environment is like. And you have some open source flavors as well. Um, but that's not to say that you, you know, when you're productionizing some of these things that you're going to productionize the notebook, you, you can fall back into, you know, putting it into a jar and doing more of a traditional modular way of deploying your code. Uh, so. I think notebooks is always kind of your first step, JR. You, you kind of use it, you explore your data, you figure it out. Um, and then you use the Spark APIs a little bit more like traditional code, like assemblies and jars to run long running, you know, jobs that need to run on schedules to pick up the data, process it, transform it. But yeah, the first investigation, that discovery, typically done in notebooks now. And the notebooks are great because you're really getting that, that interactive feedback. Not only are you kind of documenting your code and your approach, so you can just think of a live, a live Word doc. In a sense, but it it's it has the ability to have code with mark is it markdown or markup, you know. Uh, so that the whole environment, this 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 developer environment that you get to work with, has a lot of the stuff you need all in one spot. You don't necessarily have to going back to one of the original points about be you know what kind of skill set do you need to have. You don't necessarily have to be a developer. So it provides a lot of the stuff for you. You don't have to worry about, you know, building my code and doing CI, CD. I've, I've kind of got it there in a browser on top of my data lake. Okay. So now you bring up another word that caught my attention before that I'm just like, not a word that I'm used to hearing, data lake, right? And, and you mentioned earlier something about, it's like, okay, well, data warehouse approaches are kind of like old, old news already. Now it's all about the data lake. What, do, what does that, what does that mean? Tell me more about that. Where, you know, 
where where are we going away from i guess the traditional now um data warehouse approach to like what is this data lake lake house approach do you want to take that one wrong yeah so i think when you think about it at this point on-prem doesn't really make sense uh for for doing something new or or really when especially when it comes to data so that that immediately pushes you towards uh the cloud um, and when you get into the cloud, the, the obvious store for storage is just cheap blob storage. Uh, all cloud service providers have it. There are various forms of it. And, and that's where you really want to put your, your data. And in many ways, when you think about your business and maybe you've got multiple operational data stores, you don't necessarily have the, the luxury or the time when you're working with these projects to worry about schemas. So you say, okay, well, it's not that I don't want schemas. It's just, you want to be able to defer it. So having the option just to put it in files and, you know, blob storage is nice. So now I got my data in my data lake, but what we don't want to do is then forget about schemas, schema enforcement, and having some sort of transactional layer on top of it. And that's where you introduce what you refer to as the, the lake house pattern that was become popular through uh, Databricks who wrote a white paper about it. And, how is it different than a data lake, you might ask, is, is really when we think about what we were doing with Hadoop, we were putting our data into the data lake and we we're kind of leaving it there. It became a little bit more difficult to start processing it. And, and we really had this desire to have some of these traditional data warehouse things. And so what you get is people were just moving it out of their data lake to their data warehouse, whether it be in their in on-prem or in the, in the cloud, because they needed those things like, they wanted asset, they wanted transactions, they wanted uh, schemas and schema enforcement. So they wanted all those things. So we see now what um, open source communities and projects have, have provided, uh, some of them such as like Delta Lake, which came out of Databricks, or Iceberg, which came out of Netflix, or even Hive uh, Acid, which is uh, based on, on Hive, which is an open source uh, project, provides you with this transactional layer on top of your data lake. So that's what people are calling the lake house architecture, just to differentiate it from a data lake. So the big difference, JR, is you think of, think of it like this, a data warehouse traditionally, SQL data warehouse is a big SQL database, right? It might use Polymer store instead of Rose store to get some optimization, very low latency compute. But the problem with that approach is that it's limited by the size of a box. It doesn't scale horizontally. Okay. It can scale up so you can put it on a very large box and you can accomplish a lot with it. But those large boxes cost a lot of money to run and operate, whether it's on-prem, it's tons of, it's expensive hardware or in the cloud, it's very expensive to operate, right? What, what, uh, Lake House is providing us is basically a low cost storage solution that we can then attach compute on demand to it. So, so the big difference right now, why I'd say this is a great spot to be getting into data is because of the cloud. It's the ability for me to turn on a spark cluster. That's very powerful, you know, 32 cores, lots of Ram process, run my notebook and then go back to sleep. Right, so it's applying just-in-time compute to the problem, which makes it a cheaper, more cost-effective solution than having to run a SQL data warehouse all the time, right? And the thing with SQL is it's always running, it's always up, right? And that's one, of, you know, it's a benefit. I'm not knocking SQL. I'm just saying in this case, 
If you have terabytes of data that need to sit in a SQL database, that's an expensive proposition. So this right. is especially a, if you especially yeah. if you only needed like once a month or whatever to do some sort of something, then in theory you would want to not have it running the entire time and only bring it up when you're going to run whatever analytics on it you're going to run. Yeah. yeah. And, and and again, like the other thing is the the programming paradigm on a SQL warehouse. Like what I got, I got SQL. I got store procedures, depending on the flavor of RDBMS that you're using. But in in a in a data lake where I have a separation of my compute from storage, I've got all these general programming languages that I can apply to my data to my data lake. But again, the key point is different than traditional data lake to lake house is that we've inserted this layer, this transactional layer that gives me ACID, metadata handling. I, I now have the ability to, to have some lineage and, and data versioning of my data in the data lake. It's built on this open format, which is usually a, a format called Parquet. Uh, I have schemas, and, and that's super important because you need to be able to do schema um, uh, evolution. You need to be able to do schema enforcement. So you get all these other things that, well, that's great because that's what I got in my data warehouse. So now you can kind of see there's there's really no need to shuffle my data around out of my data lake to put it somewhere else because it can stay in the same spot and I can do different types of workloads. I can do my machine learning workloads. I can do my BI workloads. I can do my CI, uh, SQL workloads all in my data lake. And, and that's where the industry and the community is really moving to. Now, when you, when you have that all in the cloud, you get all this, this compute serverless uh, options on top of that, which make it very attractive. So I'm assuming then, just because of, again, I'm, in my head, I'm comparing and contrasting to the way that things used to be with the data warehouse approach and stuff like that, where you know we would always be sending data to the warehouse. Um, you know, and, and kind of like almost like either nightly batches or, or however often, but everything was like, everything was a batch process. Um, you know, you would package it up, you would ship it over and, you know, don't worry about it because it's going to get processed somehow, some way. How does this new world change, if at all, that approach? So I'll take a quick stab at it in, and then... Um... Truth is, is it might not change in the beginning. It could be batch oriented. You could be running jobs that are pulling data out of different data sources, um, dumping them into your lake and then, you know, running other jobs that process it. But another kind of pattern has emerged, which is instead of dealing with batches, we can deal with streams of data. And so part of Spark is this concept of structured streaming. And what we like to do is treat you know, the data sources as much as possible as streams. So we're getting small incremental bits of change coming into our data lake. It's putting less strain on the servers. Cause if you think of running a batch job, you might have to run a pretty expensive query to get the data out of the source system, which is now taking compute away from that database while that batch job is running. What if we could just be trickling the changes out of the data sources, capturing those, and building up what we need in our data lake, you know, to represent those changes, right? So there's a lot of good tooling around that concept. So it, we, we like to think of that as a stream first approach. Um, files, you're not getting away with files. Business is still done on files, but we can treat files as streams as well. You open it up, well, what's inside a file? It's a stream of data, 
right? So we can apply that stream paradigm to, to files, to databases, and that, that's a, an emerging pattern that we're seeing to, it, it's got two main benefits. One, less compute on the data source itself, and two, you, your data in your lake is very fresh and very current, right? It's often, you can often do real-time dashboarding with it. It's not delayed. You know, you just mentioned, what if I run my batch job every night? Well, your dashboard's not going to be up to date till the next morning then, right? right. right. Which I mean, technically approach. we've all gotten accustomed to because that's, that's the way things used to work. Yeah, and you've often seen this is only accurate up to the last 15 minutes displayed up on top, right? So those sorts of problems... Um, can start going away and you can do what's called real-time dashboarding, uh, which is built right into Power BI now. So this stream approach really um, lends itself well to, to that. Yeah. When you, when, you, when you start thinking of everything as a stream, uh, you get all those benefits that Dave mentioned, but there's other benefits too. When you think operationally of managing, um, shuffling files, batch files, whether they be hourly, daily, weekly or monthly, there's definitely a dependency that in probably in many cases exists in the target system as it's doing the processing. It's feeding from five systems. You know, system A is late, so system B can't start. So we may have system B's file, but I can't start processing because there's a dependency on system A. And then you have to deal with late data and moving this data and that data. So there's, there's this huge operational overhead that exists when you're shuffling data around with, with batch files. If you hook into all those systems and you start to treat them as a stream, a lot of those problems actually just disappear. And when you get into that mindset, that paradigm of a stream first approach, and you start building your, your processes like that, uh, it may still be late. System A is still late, but it's okay because when it comes in, your, your stream will handle it. It's not like you have to, there's not this manual intervention that potentially can be required in a batch system. The other thing that's really interesting is when you think about it of system to system, traditionally the, there, there's also an API RESTful approach, but it's very request driven. When you introduce a messaging layer such as Confluent Kafka or even open source Kafka or some of the other event hub from, from Microsoft, for example, these messaging layers offer a nice way to decouple the, the ingestion and consumption. So producers and consumers of data, sources and sinks of data. And, and that's nice because it becomes pull driven. So when a, when a process has the option, so maybe I can, I, I'm a process that works very fast. And so I can pull the data as much as I want, um, whereas another system may be very slow. So it may pull the same data just at a slower rate. That model and that pattern, you can't really do with an API uh, kind of request-driven process. And the other thing is when you think about batches, um, it gets quite complicated and cumbersome when you're trying to just you split the batch out and now you're both consuming the file and now you've kind of got dual compute going on uh it's much nicer when you have a, a messaging layer separating separating this so as dave was mentioning you know we like to introduce that one of the patterns we, we really like is a, is a change data capture pattern or known as a cdc pattern and this is instead of writing a truly a, a sequel jdbc script or procedure or using some ETL tool to extract your data out of your database. 
we, we go in through the, the database logs and, and we capture this, this log changes. So those are the changes that are occurring on the database, the insert, updates, deletes, even alters. And, and we read the logs. And as this data, as Dave said, incrementally comes in, we're consuming it into a messaging layer. And that gives us a nice buffer and a decoupling. And then there's processes that just are consumers of that messaging layer. And some may consume because they're trying to replicate the source system table in the data lake. Others may just be looking for fraud and they don't care about recreating the table. They're, they're just looking through the messages. They're looking for something specific or they're applying a machine learning model to it or even more of a simple, you know, um, business rule approach to finding fraud or something like that. So that's what ultimately that's what you were meaning before when you said you're gonna you're gonna hook into systems, right? You're you're in this case you're hooking into those database logs and then using that to push it onto the messaging layers. So of course that then answers my question of uh, or maybe there's more to it. What what if anything needs to change on the source side itself, like the 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 thing that is creating the data. Cause it sounds like if you're just hooking into the database logs, I technically don't need to change where the, the thing um, that creates the data or should I like, what do we do? Yeah. With that? yeah so that that's really interesting. And, and so when you think about the, the, the schemas that are in the database, here's another benefit. When you have a batch system, and you write it in some tool or you write your SQL to extract out of the database, how do you, how do you convey or capture the schema? Well, basically you write it on the back of a napkin and you implement it in your target. But when you do a messaging layer where you're hooking in and doing a, a CDC pattern, a, a log based CDC, you're getting the schema at the same time as the message directly from the source. So, that's one thing that's kind of nice. Check. I've got my schema with my message and, and in part K it's kind of, it's self-describing. So that's great. But then what is, what happens if there are changes on those source databases? So those changes will propagate through the messaging layer seamlessly in most cases. But then the question is, well, how do I handle it? My data lake? Well, that goes back to that nice layer that we had inserted into our data lake with the lake house pattern using tools such as Delta which are provided um, through Databricks or even Synapse that will manage your schema evolution and even schema enforcement. Adding to that, imagine our two consumers, one was consuming you know, the data and the other one was consuming it slower. Maybe the new, the slow consumer doesn't wanna change his schema. So when we have it in our messaging layer and we've got the first original schema, they can continue to consume and there, there's no breaking change generally. But the, the fast guy, he's gonna he's okay with the new schema that was done in the originating system. And so he now moves to the new schema. But generally, those two schemas coexist in the messaging layer. So that's really nice because when our, an arrestful approach, contracts break, things break when you know we have all these contracts that are quite tight between, uh, between systems. Huh. <laughs> so, okay. So we're talking about all these things. And then I'm thinking again, I'm going through different ways back in the day when I used to write software and stuff like that. It seems like the implication then with everything that we're talking about here is that, well, I mean, firstly, we're implying data has to be in the cloud. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, does data have to be in the cloud 
Like, is it one of those things like we typically say with everything else, like kind of think about it as a cloud first approach, or is this one of those things where it's like, well, no, just do it on prem and then find a way to get it to the cloud. Like what's the deal here? So I'd say at object sharp, we're, we're known as a cloud native application development shop, right? And we're taking the, the same approach with our data practice. We want to do cloud first code first approach to data that that's kind of our way of, of approaching these data problems. So, um, yeah, it's not to say you can't do it on prem. It's just the way that we like to solve these problems is to take advantage of kind of the, the tools that are available, um, the cheap storage and the, um, serverless compute. Those are two right off the bat, huge benefits. Then I'd say the other thing too, that we're kind of instilling JR is that the concept of CI/CD doesn't go away. It actually gets a little bit more complicated with all these data pipelines, but you can still imagine in your head that there is a dev environment, there is a prod environment. How do we propagate data from one to the other? How do we test a pipeline in one, you know, in our dev environment? We don't want to break a production pipeline. How do we test changes? So all of the stuff that we do at Object Sharp, from the, the cloud enablement to you know application development, CI, CD, all those concepts we're applying to the new data practice, right? So yeah, just to summarize, yeah, we do think cloud first is, is probably the way to go. Um, and we're actually kind of aligned, Rob and I, on, on the code first approach as well, which is why we like the Spark way of doing it versus the kind of drag and drop tools. Yeah. Yeah, Dave Brain brought out a point there about clients and, and dev environments and prod environments. And, and that's something really interesting that we're seeing with, with some of our clients and, and in the community is this mindset that, uh, well, production is locked down. Nobody should be there. But if you go to a, a data analyst or somebody who is responsible for analyzing the data or a data scientist who is responsible for generating models that will be, you know, have some predictive capability either to help somebody make a decision or to embed in a system and make the decision for us, like, you know, this is fraud. Uh, they need to work in a production environment. They need access to the actual data and usually large amounts of the data in the case of training a machine learning model. And so this is something that we're working with with many of our clients. And when we talk to different ones, that they're not always used to that idea that uh, people are going to be working in production and playing in production. And so that's a, another interesting dynamic that we're, we're dealing with. And it's nice because the tools that we're using in the cloud make it a little easier uh, to work around some of the constraints that some of these clients may have, where we're setting up maybe a little bit of a hybrid environment. It's a little dev, but it's also a little bit of a prod. Uh, and, and, and that makes uh, the whole journey a little easier than if you were on-prem working with you know, provisioning servers and working in data centers. And it, it just gets a little messy. So you've just you've perfectly laid out what sounds to me like future uh, podcast episodes. Um, I heard two in there actually that I'd love to have you guys both back in the studio here with me to to think about, which is um, one I heard in there a whole bunch of like, wow, hey, data is like code and predate environments and whatever. So it'd be so interesting to find out more about you know what does source control look like when it comes to all these things what does ci cd look like is if we're taking a code first approach in yeah. theory all of the things that we know today about how we do our pipelines and how we do all these things should apply here as well 
Um, and I suspect that that's a, that's a full episode in and of itself. Uh, and in fact, probably even a, a webinar at that. And then the other thing that I heard in there um, was that this whole notion of working in production and, and working with the data um, in environments that are typically locked down sounds to me like there's a little bit of a culture change that needs to happen around Definitely. how you do data in real time or how you do data um, with the folks who need access to the data as it's happening or as these streams are coming in. Um, so I, I think that one, uh, that one is probably for, for yeah. later chats as well. That, and that's, that's one of the big things, main things that I'm doing now with our clients is preparing them for that change. They're very used to you know, dev, prod, pre-prod, QA, UAT, right? All the different environments in complete isolation. The truth is, is that I can't, like, as Rob said, you can't glean those insights that you're looking for off of garbage data sitting in QA. It needs to be the production data. So I'm doing development on production data. And it's just a little bit of a mind shift. And sure, would love to come back and talk about that more. And, and especially as we get different ways of solving that problem, right? Once we've gone through it a different, like we have some concepts now, but as we do three and four of these gigs, we're probably going to figure out different ways to tackle that. Nice. Yeah. So between now and then, when we, when, when we have you back, what do you, like, what's the one thing? And I'd love to hear from each of you. What, what should be the, like, the one thing, having listened to this conversation and sort of thinking about data as it exists to me, what's the one thing I should be thinking about? Do you want me to go first, Dave? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, it, it's a good question. I think the one thing that if I was a, a business leader or IT or I had to make some changes for data, I keep it simple. I, there's a lot of stuff in the cloud and you can become like a kid in a candy store and you're like, I'll take some of that. I'll take some of that and that. And we all know what happens when a kid has too much candy. It's a mess. It's an architectural mess when you start taking all the stuff, all these shiny things. So that'd be one thing. Keep it simple. There's only actually a few things you really need to get up and running, get your data in the place where you can actually just start looking at it. And, and I think that's a huge accomplishment because when you couple it with a, with a firm and a culture who's been traditionally on-prem and they're moving to the cloud, and then maybe you add in, well, there've been traditional waterfall and they're moving to agile. It's like you've got, you've got so many things going on that if you start having these grand visions of your beautiful data platform like Google and Facebook and all these other great companies, and, and et cetera, who have built from the ground up and probably on their fifth iteration of those platforms, you're, you're not gonna do well. Uh, so that would be, I think, my, my suggestion and what I would have people think about is how can I just you know, keep it simple, get some basic things in the cloud, provide some insights early, get people access. There's a whole training. When you think about the training that goes along with moving from on-prem to cloud and then moving from older data uh, tool sets to newer tool sets, that's a lot of pressure on, on people in an organization. Yeah, for so sure. So start small is what you're saying. I think my takeaway, JR, is a little bit, having just gone through this journey from a .NET mindset, it's not as big a leap as you think to start working with data and start working with Spark. 
right? I think um, it's a little bit of a mind shift, of course, but we've had things in .NET like Link that's doing deferred execution. We're used to being able to query our data in memory and, you know, kind of stack on queries and then not execute to the bottom. That concept is not new in .NET and Spark really embraces that. There's a lot of similarities between the two languages. Um, so, you know, we do have a lot of .NET developers at ObjectSharp. Spark.net's a really good starting place. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't shy away from it. It's here. We can start using these tools and, and being able to execute and run on compute uh, like Databricks is providing and Synapse is providing is pretty unbelievable how much data you can process um, so quickly. Like gigabytes of data, you know, millions, tens of millions of rows of data being processed in milliseconds. So it's pretty incredible and it doesn't have as big a learning curve as people think. I'm sensing a, a recurring theme from you, Dave. Every time you come on, on the podcast, you know, the last time you had the same thing where you're like, you know, it's really not that, you know, it's really not that much of a learning curve to go into Razor. Now you're say, or Blazor, sorry. Blazor, yeah. <laughs> Razor, Blazor, I can't keep up. Anyway, into Blazor. So now it's effectively, hey, you know, .NET developer to uh, data work now, also not a gigantic leap, which I mean is is great news for anyone who, you know, is looking to kind of diversify the things that they work on, the things that they're interested in, et cetera. Yeah. And then going from that into Scala was not as bad as I thought. In fact, now I just switch in between the two. Still not a Python guy. I haven't converted <laughs> that far yet. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it's been a good experience and the, the tooling keeps getting better. And I've only been at it, like I said, six to nine months really focused on it from, from a, a dev perspective. Amazing. Well, I can't wait until we continue the conversation with uh, those other two conversations. In the meantime, I'm going to say thank you so much for sharing all those insights. I know I certainly have learned a lot, especially as I as I kind of get myself out of my traditional mindset back in the day of, you know, apps and apps and data databases to then data warehouses to now, hey, lake data lakes and lake houses. So um, it's uh, it's been an interesting ride. Thank you both for all of that. And uh, we'll look forward to having you back for the continued discussion. Cheers. Thanks for having us. This podcast is brought to you by ObjectSharp. Whether migrating workloads to Azure or building net new cloud-native solutions leveraging the power of PaaS, serverless, .NET, or the Power Platform, or implementing DevOps and agile practices within teams or across the entire organization, ObjectSharp has been helping companies with their digital transformations for over 20 years. Learn more at ObjectSharp.com or connect on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. ObjectSharp is a central logic company.